0: And now for your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PNR with This Old
1: Marketing. Take it away, boys. Hello, content marketers. I'm Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 109 of PNR's This Old Marketing, recorded Saturday, December 12th, 2015. Well, it's finally here, folks. This is the week. There will be a night arguably bigger than Christmas, Hanukkah, Festivus, Kwanzaa, New Year's Eve, and even the Festival of the Ass. And no, I'm not talking about a Donald Trump rally. The Festival of the Ass is actually a real thing where starting in the Middle Ages, a young girl would ride through town with a babe in her arms and a donkey celebrating the nativity. No, what we're talking about is bigger than the Festival of the Ass. It's bigger than Christmas. It's bigger than Hanukkah. It's the bigger than a festival, bigger than a red-eyed BB gun on a Sunday morning, bigger than a Festivus pole, bigger than a blick, a breakdown and a letdown of what New Year's always is. We're talking much bigger. We're talking the opening of Star Wars, The Force Awakens. It's going to hit theaters worldwide this Friday. Will Jar Jar Binks turn out to be Snoke, leader of the First Order and a Sith Lord? Are Rey and Kylo Ren twins? Are the twin children of Han and Leia? Did Han and Leia ever hook up? Where's Luke? Did he go to the dark side? Did Boba Fett make it out of the Sarlacc pit? And is he actually alive? Do I sound like a complete geek right now? All of those answers will be forthcoming in a mere five days when this show actually goes live. Five days! Five days! So, here at PNR, we're celebrating Star Wars this week, and we give you the famous beginning scroll. PNR, episode 109 The Advertisers Strike Back. It's a dark time for the Content Marketing Rebellion. Although the interruptive banner ad star has been largely destroyed by ad blockers, Imperial-branded content and native advertising troops are on the move. The rebellion's inability to use the force of content to prove ROI has driven the rebel content marketers from their hidden base well inside the company, and the advertising troops have pursued them across the marketing strategy galaxy. Evading the dreaded Imperial programmatic data-driven Starfleet, a group of freedom fighters led by the young and fearless Joe Orange P. Skywalker has established a new secret base on the remote marketing cloud world of customer experiences. The evil Lord Ad Vader, obsessed with finding young Polizzi Skywalker and his sidekick Rozo Solo, who definitely shoots first, by the way, had dispatched thousands of remote automated copywriting bots and programmatic technology into the far reaches of the Internet, as our episode opens, we see Joe Orange, P. Skywalker, and Rose o Solo stranded on a social media platform high in the clouds. Joe Orange is screaming, Rented land! Rented land! And with no further ado, I bring you episode 109, In a Galaxy Far, Far Away. How are you, Joe Orange? <laughs>
0: That was brilliant. You definitely did shoot first. There's no doubt about that. Absolutely, absolutely. This was this was good. This was a, a pleasant surprise. Yeah, good.
1: Are I, you, I had I had fun. I had a lot you, of fun you, figuring that one out.
0: You? Uh, how long did that? You know, you get this question all the time. How long did it take you to write that?
1: Oh, that sorry. one did not take long at all. It just because it just. I mean, I you I were inspired. It, those the geeks in the crowd will know that I immediately stole most of that from Empire Strikes Back. The best of the star Wars. Oh series, yeah. totally my agree. Opinion. It's not even close. It's yeah. So I, it's five, I four, stole it from that. I yeah. stole, I stole the structure of the scroll from that and, and, um, and went from there. So I, I, I imagine it took about an hour to do total. It's five, four, six. That's all I got.
0: <laughs> I don't <laughs> have, five, are you yet. going to, are
1: you going to see it? Oh, of course I'm going to see like, it. Now I'm not. I'm not like night. you. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not getting into the oh. the sneak preview, seeing it twice in 24 hours thing. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not there. Are, um, you are not a true fan. I am Come a true on, fan, man. but I. But so here's the thing. I don't live in a family of true fans, and so I would be. It would be really geeky of me to do this by myself um and but uh i i'm not so i will wait probably until the christmas holiday sometime and see it i'll see it within the first 2 weeks i'm sure you should come to cleveland it's warmer. <laughs> it's warmer Cleveland. in Cleveland right now than it is in Los Angeles. I know that. I know that for a fact. And we're. I'm enjoying the rain. We're we're getting a little rain here, and we're getting a little beautiful wind. And you know, it's it's winter time here in Los Angeles. It's very nice.
0: I was driving today. I went to um, my younger son's basketball game, and we're driving to the location. And it's 74 degrees, and we've got the the moon room is the moonroof is back sunroof in this case and we're in we got the that the radio blasted up and we're like this is the middle of December can you believe it it's amazing oh, that's fantastic yeah, it's it's
1: something i don't know what that means for the <laughs> I don't future know what of that our race is, but, <laughs> but i know <laughs> but it's there something there you go
0: <laughs> all right my friend, should we get started here? shall
1: we to the news yep. we shall indeed so our first uh, story uh in today's show comes to us courtesy of the wall street journal um and it is entitled here's what's happened to pineapple airbnb's print magazine um the article opens up by saying a year ago, and we actually covered this on the show uh, Airbnb published the first issue of Pineapple, a print magazine designed for coffee tables in homes across the rental company's expanding network. The idea at the time was that Pineapple would publish quarterly and showcase stories of members in Airbnb, which in November had raised more than $100 million at a valuation of $25 billion. Four quarters later, however, the arts and culture magazine has printed only one issue. Thank <laughs> you. Um, Airbnb, however, may be soon charting a different strategy. The company has recently been in talks with Hearst com- uh, to launch a new magazine as a joint venture, according to people familiar with the project. So, the magazine called Pineapple, the content marketing platform called Pineapple, may indeed see a second life here. Uh, what say you, Joe? Did uh, there was a, an accompanying, by the way, Fast Company article that talked about this as well. Um, that uh, that was sent to us by a few folks. So, what do you th- what do you think? I mean, we're going to see Pineapple again and. What the heck is this all about? Well, I do have a take on the,
0: you know, the Hearst relationship or the idea there, but I guess my first question is, I mean, you and I both are, are friends, acquaintances with uh, their new chief marketing officer, Jonathan Mildenhall, and it sounds like the article says that he came in almost you know midway through the production of the original idea yeah. behind pineapple. Yeah. I mean, do you think this is what I mean, you and I have been around in a lot of occasions when there's some the content champion in the organization has an idea pushing it through, we get a leadership change and then there's not the excitement that once was. Do you think that this might be the case?
1: I think so so knowing Jonathan to the very small extent that I do, which is quite frankly I've had like two or three conversations with him and met him in person once. So take all that with a grain of salt. But knowing him like I do, what I would suggest actually, because it does mention some politics and stuff like that, I would I would imagine that he either didn't like what he saw the magazine becoming um, and liked the idea, but didn't like the execution of it, and said, let's stop this until we can actually do it the right way. Um, or there were other things at play here where it just—it's one of those things that fell through the cracks during the regime change. That's that I don't yeah. think I don't think the company. I mean, look, the resources to produce a print magazine—you know—given the amount of money that Airbnb has, you can't tell me this was a budget thing. This is not a budget thing. No, this was purely, I think, a process and/or executional challenge that they had and just couldn't get it done. Which I think probably is the reason that they're going to. Hearst because quite frankly, they can probably get, and uh, you know, I I don't want to throw anybody, I don't know anybody involved here, but I'm just going to assume that the execution here was the reason why and that you can get a better product out of a company that actually knows how to do this as its core competency. Well,
0: true, but also, and I, so i I've been around longer in the custom publishing business than I care to say <laughs> so I've, I've seen I've seen a lot of these models let's right. just look at it if you're coming in and you're a numbers guy so if you're a CMO and you're a numbers guy and you're looking at the overall marketing budget they did a hundred eighteen thousand initial print copies to host companies of a 128 page publication right that, that cost them well into six figures to do this publication because it's high quality it's a great yeah, piece that's that a beautiful magazine together. yeah now, they Airbnb is one of, well, like it or not, you know, it's a $25 billion valuation. They're one of the elite uh, brand names out there. If I'm Jonathan and I'm smart, I could go to a Hearst. I'm not saying that they did this, but this is the way that it, it could work and has worked many times in the past. You could go to a company like a Hearst and say, I we will uh, deliver this to our host com- host database. You don't have to pay for distribution. We'll distribute it. I don't want to pay for anything, and I want a percentage of royalties off the ads you're going to sell into it. Hearst, a company like Hearst, could say, yes, absolutely, we'll take it on. We'll take it on as risk, at risk and move forward with that. I, I was involved when I was a Penn, a lot of projects, especially we were involved in one particular project. Airline publication, and yeah. that's a lot how of people Air- don't
1: know. That's exactly how the airline magazine. That's how work.
0: it works. You have a you have a publisher. Uh, it, traditionally, it's been called a custom publisher. Now you may call it a content marketing agency. It doesn't yep. really matter. Exactly. But they come in. They'll go to the airlines. They'll go to the Ritz-Carltons of the world, whatever, and they'll say, "Look, we want to publish for your audience. Uh, you have it full editorial control for the most part, but we'll make our advisements. We'll sell the advertising, and it will give you a little bit of cut, and then they make their you know, money off the advertising sales. So maybe that's what, that this that's what when I first saw this, Robert, that's what I thought was happening, similar to if you look at, you know, Kraft Food and Family, they've got Meredith to help with that publication. You that's look right. at Southwest Airlines, yeah. has Pace Communications to help with that one. If you look at Ritz-Carlton, they have Manifest that does that publication and on and on and on and on. So if it did come down to financials, you could say that Airbnb could get could make this a revenue generator for them because their brand is so powerful.
1: That, that's a really great point. That's a, it's a really great point. I, I you know I suspect it's probably a little bit of all of that, right? Yeah. I mean, it's you know it's an opportunity for them to change the model of it. It's the opportunity for them to execute something that may be more in Mildenhall's creative sort of executional vision. It may be a personnel thing. You know, because one of the things that the article mentions is priorities. You know where the priorities were, and quite frankly, if the there was a large internal team really focused on this, well, and you know this better than most people. Quite frankly, is how many people it actually takes to make a successful, beautiful print. It publication. takes a village. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I see what you did there. Yeah, and so. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, basically, I think he could have looked at it and went, why am I having all these people in my internal team focus on this when we could actually go out to someone who will do this for us, e- either at cost or or even trying to generate some revenue out yeah. of this?
0: The last thing that I'll say on it, I don't want to say I'm disappointed, but I'm disappointed. I really had high hopes for this as the the first issue was sort of uh, a spearhead into a larger Overall content brand that they were trying to create. I mean, you and I talked about it on the show when it was released. We we both thought that it was it could be something great, and it, it didn't seem like it. Though it could be, you know, you already said it. Maybe it wasn't what Jonathan thought it would, would be. Uh, maybe they didn't plan it for a longer term type of thing, and they just said, "Let's try, let's put one out there and see." Uh, but that's what I love about publishing and media brands versus sometimes what. A brand will do from a content marketing perspective because if you're a media company, if you're a publisher, you put put together a three-year plan on this. You say, we've got the money. We're going to go ahead and do this. We're going to make a three-year commitment. We're going to put all these funds into audience development. We're going to make this happen. We know it's going to take us 12 to 18 months to really know what kind of data we have and whether we're making an impact. It takes that long. I mean, usually, you're not going to get the advertisers and sponsors and supporters off all in the first run anyways. They've got to see it. They've got to feel it, touch it, smell it. So, I just I think that maybe there is some short sightedness going on. I hope for the best. I hope we see something out of this, but I was a bit disappointed with it.
1: So yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. You know, this is one of those things that you'd wish had sort of worked from the get go. But here, I mean, look. Let's look at it this way: that it, it, it maybe round two is better, bigger. You know, yeah. more more focused on content marketing because certainly, certainly, Mildenhall knows more now than he did about you know all of this. And and so mm-hmm. let's maybe maybe round two will actually be. And here's the here's the best news of all: Wall Street Journal used the words content marketing for the second time in an article. So. Yay. So we yay. should
0: actually give a little kudos out who who wrote this? Uh, Steven Perlberg. Steven.
1: Yeah. A+ plus, my friend. Absolutely. Even though he put it in rock and roll quotes, it's it the at least the at least the term was there. You know what? Well, we'll absolutely
0: take it. I'll take it. <laughs> exactly. <directly. laughs> Good job. I'm, I'm Amanda Subler, our Subler our uh, our wonderful media relations director. She's been working really hard on making that happen. So.
1: Yeah. We're getting there. You all right, it. all right then. All right, we're getting there Alrighty. and let's move on to our what second. Do we have next? I don't know. Anyway, moving on to our second story of the show. It is coming to us uh, courtesy of Digiday.com and the headline is Ad blocking will force industry to put the user experience first. And the article opens up by saying if publishers weren't thinking about the user before, well, they will in the coming year. Spurred by Apple's introduction of ad blocking to iOS in September, publishers and advertisers spent much of 2015 wavering between muted concern and outright panic over ad blocking's potential effect on the future of the industry. Over 198 million people, I don't know why you don't just say 200 million people, people—all right, globally run ad blockers each month, according to anti-ad blocking firm PageFair, and Apple support risked increasing. The magnitude of that existential threat even further. And so the article goes on to talk about how the user experience needs to be put first. And how these publishers are starting to even think about this? So, what say you? Is this is this really starting to bleed into the publishers now? we talked last week about this whole Yahoo thing starting to you know block those who block ad blockers and uh, or, or or those who block ads rather. And this is this is them saying you know publishers need to think about reducing the number of ads, creating better customer experiences, et cetera. What do you think, Joe? Hmm. Well, I'm generally wrong, but. (laughs) That's true. That's true. You're
0: right about that. (laughs) I think in the next five years, the majority of media companies have to figure out a business model where they're reliant on absolutely no digital advertising of any kind, traditional digital advertising. I'm not talking about native or branded content or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I'm talking about the way that we look at digital advertising today. I don't think it's going to exist in that form. And if you look at the uh, vices of the world, the buzzfeeds of the world, the voxes of the world, the majority of their revenue is based on native advertising, I guess is what you'd call it, sponsored content in some way. I mean, I... I read a thing the other day that said Huffington Post today has over a hundred content contributors in their office in New York just focused on sponsored content, it's, it's, and it's it's amazing to see what's happened. That that is a clear sign and indication, in, in and and advertising. You know, and let's be honest here, it's not just about the user experience. We're talking to a lot of the sponsors that we have; they're not excited about online digital advertising. You know why? Because it doesn't work very well. Right. It just doesn't work, regardless if it. You know, if, if let's put it this way, if it worked from a revenue standpoint, from a lead generation standpoint, from an awareness standpoint, whatever the goals are,
1: publishers would, would do it till the cows come home if he, it was driving he, more revenue. Here's but the thing not. that from so from the marketing practitioner side, here is the thing that an article like this makes me want to scream from the rooftops. Right here, here we are. We're a business trying to figure out if we should become. A publisher of content in some sort of linear format. And you know, whether that's a digital magazine or a print magazine or a blog or whatever, it's we're going to we're going to, in the words that has been much abused these days, we're going to become a publisher. And we're trying to figure out if we should do that. And one of the main concerns I hear over and over again is, well, it's a crowding, noisy space, and how are we going to compete with the media properties out there because they do this so well? Guess what? They don't. They're, they're, they're fumbling around at this just like everybody else is. And so this is the opportunity now because yeah. guess what? As a business, you don't have to make money. You don't have to worry about ad blockers. You don't have to worry about banner advertising generating eyeballs and revenue, et cetera. You can take a moderately successful publication. And, and, and you know, we've talked about this at the master class, et cetera. And you look at, you know, if I'm a business today, I'm going to look at a moderately successful because let's not all of us are Coca-Cola or IBM or Apple or somebody like that. Can you go out and buy a, you know, Washington Post or somebody, but look at a B or a C or a D oriented publication, a reasonably successful publication that's struggling to figure out how to continue to monetize. And you buy the whole kit and caboodle, turn that into a marketing platform for you. You you become the one and main only sponsor. You no longer have to monetize it because you have to. It's a marketing expense. You're investing in an audience that's going to provide value over the long run. You don't have to go build something. You already met. You get it. I, this this to me seems like such a no-brainer of a business case to make in today's tumultuous disruptive space of where publishers find themselves and it seems like every week we we have a an article like this where the publishers are going blah running around with the chicken with their head cut off going ad blockers are going to ruin the world and and now is the time now we should I mean it's like now's the time to pick off a few of these really strategic properties And make them into content marketing and make them something successful. It just, the marketing practitioner in me goes, this is, this is it. This is, this is what we want to take advantage. This is the buy low, sell high sign that you're all waiting for.
0: (laughs) Robert, I, I like this side of you.
1: (laughs) I really like this message. Um, you know, I, I think yeah, but I, this content marketing isn't a thing. It's a fad. It's like CB radio. It's yeah, exactly,
0: over. exactly. Well, you and I mentioned it in when we wrote Managing Content Marketing, and then I've I've obviously talked about it in every book, and it's been written m- multiple articles on the Content Marketing Institute site. A media company has to serve two masters. Right. They have to serve the audience, the readership, and they also have to serve their advertising base. That is why a brand has full advantage because they can put 100% focus on the audience and they don't have to worry about anyone else's perspective on it. And your point is exactly right. And I think that anybody that says that media companies have it easier are completely wrong. They don't. They have it harder. Absolutely, because – and uh, j- just take a quick look, and I'll talk about a little bit of this later in my rants and raves, but the, the, the whole native advertising thing, it's hard on media companies. Exactly. It's tough. They yeah. don't – media companies really don't want to do sponsored content. It's just a gold mine right now, and they can't turn away, and they're not getting digital ads. So they're like, okay, we got to do this sponsored content thing. And by the way, we we covered it a couple weeks ago, but if you haven't seen the South Park special on it, you have to watch it. Oh, it's just so great. It's brilliant on that whole thing. So yeah, I, but yeah, they're just, they're just, this article is just looking at it from the, the media company perspective. And that's it. That's it. The user experience, you can focus on it as a brand 100%. And publishers have to worry about paying the bills,
1: right? And that's the only reason it was. It was the when I saw this article, the thing that leapt out at me was that here are here, you know, this would you know, if you're talking to a business or businesses are talking to other businesses. In other words, marketing practitioners talking to marketing practitioners, just exactly to your point. And if the debate was well you know should we actually create a better user experience on our on our web properties or should we basically be trying to segment them and chop them up into different ways that helps us draw uh, more traffic to them. It's like n- there, there's no debate there. That the fa- and the fact that the publishers are still trying to figure this out how to serve those two masters, to me provides such a huge opportunity for marketers to step into that. I mean, we, st- I mean, not to beat a dead horse here, but we, we talked about this I think six months ago on on the show, like in the middle of the summer, right around our anniversary. I think it was and. Where we talked about this idea that, um, you know, if if publishers, in other words, journalists and publishers weren't going to fix marketing, that marketers would have to fix publishing, and I, I I still to this day I maybe I'm maybe I'm tilting at windmills here, but I believe that to be true. I believe marketing and companies and brands can save what is a disrupted industry right now. Well, if you
0: look at the where all the money's at. That's what's going to happen, the ma- and if it hasn't already happened, we just haven't noticed it. The majority of publishers out there right now are, are brands. I mean that's just happening, and then it just doesn't get the ink, doesn't get the coverage. Right, it will start yeah. to get no, the coverage. It's true enough, and it's just going to happen. And in in a few years, the business models are going to look exactly alike because what this article reminded me of is that we're we're going to see. This huge because of ad blocking and whether it's over exaggerated or not doesn't matter, but you're, you know, publishers are paying attention to it. You're going to see a evolution of the business media model, and True you're enough. going, you're seeing yep. that now. You're going to see it. Um, all the new media companies that are coming out, none of them have display advertising in their revenue line. True none enough. of them do, yeah. So they're, you know, and, and by the way, a lot of those new media companies are. You know, people from the marketing side. <laughs> Anyways, so, well, there's that. There's, there's it's like, there's I can that do this. Too. Yeah, they, they've been working with, been working with <laughs> publishers long enough. They say, I can do this. I, <laughs> yeah. I can do this better than they can. Forget <laughs> it. So.
1: All right. Let's move on to our next story. This one comes to us courtesy of friends, certainly good friend and family of the show, uh, annhandley.com and her blog and the headline is Content Marketing Grows Up 2016 Prediction Um, and this blog post got a little heat um, certainly in the inside baseball crowd I think and the uh, blog post opens up by saying content marketing wakes up one morning in a place it doesn't recognize and tries to piece together what happened last night went on a binge I guess Um, and all the previous nights too because if it's being honest with itself last night wasn't an occasional bender it had become a lifestyle it takes a good hard look at itself and wonders with a measure of regret how the heck did I end up here she goes on to talk about how she believes that content marketing will actually grow up in the coming year and start to figure out how it will actually do the hard work necessary to become a successful process really fun metaphor and a fun post by by Anne and lots of discussion around this what did you think about it
0: I love, well, it's an elegant and witty post, and Anne is a fantastic She is writer, a good writer. So there that. is and no she, doubt about that. And she brings up a lot of the things that we've been talking about, how brands are inconsistent, too self-serving. They've got yep. no business goals. They're not focusing on building an audience. Uh, you know you We've talked about a lot of these things, but I think she's a year early. I think that we are still at a point where the majority of brands out there are all over the place, and they don't. They're not thinking strategically at all, um, and I think of we'll see we'll see a small portion of brands out there get it and think strategically and start to resource it properly and probably stop spreading their content in every conceivable channel and focus yes. on what works. The reduction be, the I of content. I don't think there's going to be. I think until we start to see it, until we start to see less content being created and more quality content focused. On an audience's pain points, on a particular audience, I'm just not. I mean, you're you you meet daily with these brands. I don't. I think we're seeing them know that they have to do something about it, but I don't see them pulling the trigger yet on actually
1: doing it. I see them pulling the trigger on the 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 focus on reduction, on simplification. Um, the, the idea of reducing the amount of content that's getting, that is a recognized problem in the enterprise these days. The amount of content that's getting created. Every single large, complex, siloed, global enterprise I talk to recognizes that this is an issue. That the amount of content that the, that the organization is creating is, you know, as the guy would say, the rent is too damn high. You know, the, 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 the amount of content we create <laughs> is too damn high. And so all of that is recognized, and I'm really seeing active initiatives to to figure that out. What I'm not seeing as much, and I think gets to your point, is then the focus on, okay, if we are going to reduce what we do create, when we do create something, why are we creating it and what kind of differentiation are we actually creating? That's a harder nut to crack, quite frankly, because the time, you know, and this gets to every, you know, this, this ratchets all the way up to business strategy, quite frankly. And, you know, uh, you know, I have some friends who work on Wall Street and this is a well recognized challenge in in Wall Street and covering big public companies, too, which is, companies these days, public or private, tend to think in quarters, not years. And so it is all about how do I improve results quarter to quarter to quarter or month to month to month, not year over year or even two years, 24-month periods over 24-month periods. It is, we think, in such short-term spurts that it becomes very hard to do things and invest in things that take more than a month or a quarter or a half year to produce results of. And that focus on quality, um, I think you'll get some level of that when you reduce the amount, but it really won't come until businesses have the flexibility to be able to think more than a quarter out about what they're actually building with a content program.
0: Well, this is the, that's a great point, and this is why the David versus Goliath scenario is in play right now, because if you have a small company, and obviously we, we talk about all the examples in, in Content Inc., the book, if they, they have patience, they're willing to be patient they're willing to build an audience over time and if you're if you don't have to worry about making numbers the next quarter and you know it's going to take some time you're going to see smaller companies that are going into these niches and they're building large audiences and they're making an impact and they're just blowing right by large yeah. enterprises cuz they can't get their act together
1: and this is why we by the way recommend you know and we've said it ad nauseum at this point that content marketing doesn't have to, we're not prescribing that content marketing replace everything that a business does in marketing. No. We, you know, no, we not. recognize that it this, it is one small, medium or large aspect of what you do in a more holistic marketing and advertising program, but it can be helpful. And so that's where it really becomes. So it's like in whatever amount or whatever you bite off in terms of trying to, trying to create a process and a function for content, the the worst thing that happens by creating a process and a function of a content marketing-oriented approach is that you actually do reduce the amount of content that you're creating, increasing its efficacy as an effort going forward. And then that gives you more time, theoretically, to focus on all that other stuff you do. So there is no bad business case for content marketing as a process. There's just not. There's if the, if the if the only thing it produces is an efficiency in all the content you're already producing, then it's already then it's already paid for itself. Beyond that, if you can start doing strategic things with it, then you're doing then then that's that's when you're doing God's work, son. Well, <laughs> you. you just, <laughs> Your point about purchasing a large
0: enterprise, purchasing a media company—that's that's why it's, it's compelling. The fact that they have the money, they probably just haven't thought about using it to purchase a media company, but they get by all the growing pains. Of right. Building the brand, no, exactly right. Building the audience, and you just bypass it. I could, I could sell that. Like, if anybody's having problems selling it in their organization, let me know. I mean, I'll talk to the guy and say, "Look, you can." Instead, I got a guy. I got a I guy.
1: I got a guy. I got a guy. I got I a guy. Guy, gonna, guy. His name is Joe Orange, and his little sidekick uh, Roso Solo. He's going to come Rose to your so. business. He's going to tell you a little bit about this uh, buying a business bada, thing. Bada boom, bada bing, and there we go. We got a media company. <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. A,
0: that's that's it. it it's. It's not a hard sell. It's the fact they just don't think of it. it they just are not thinking of it. It doesn't, it doesn't even register with them. I mean, you and I talk about it. They're just like,
1: what? I've never thought about that. Can we do that? I'm like, oh, my gosh. It, it's, it's unbelievable that it's – yeah. Well, anyway. Then, then we'll go on to – Yeah, to, I don't know. So anyways, I don't know if you have any more on, on Anne's. Uh, I do not. I, congrats yeah. to... I mean, it's a wonderful post. If you should go, you should definitely go read it. She's a one... I mean, is it any wonder that she wrote a book on writing because she herself is a wonderful writer. Okay, our last... Uh, story for the show this week is brutal competition for audience time across B2B and B2C. comes to us from TheMediaBriefing.com, and the article opens up by saying, B2B business models are changing rapidly, driven by technological change. The platforms and channels on which a B2B audience expects to interact with a publisher and increased competition for audience time on those platforms mean that publisher having to adopt new strategies to keep up. Colin Morrison, author of long-form media blog Flashes and Flames, spoke at the inaugural B2B Media Strategies to discuss how these publishers needed to adapt, and he began by putting the modern publishing landscape into context, arguing that B2B publishers have to become more like B2C and vice versa. As he said, quote, the print-centric B2B industry is having to change so fast, these kinds of B2B companies can learn a lot about the style and delivery of community building of consumer media because Candy Crush is alternating with metal bulletin. They have to be as good as each other in their own way and easy for you to use and have some of the same facility. So what do you think, Joe, about uh, about this article and about that idea of B2B and B2C becoming more like each other when we think about content? I don't even... Delineate between B two B and B two C anymore,
0: and I I guess the one thing that I don't buy is there's nothing wrong with a B two B publisher focusing on print. I mean, we don't they don't if they if they're building an audience, and and I've seen reader surveys across the board in multiple uh, industries. Where you're looking at how that print magazine is doing and the readership loves it and they're engaging with it and they're reading it just as much or more than they ever have before. Right. What's hurting? It's the revenue model that hurt hurting because nobody wants to pay for advertising. That's what it is. So everybody goes in and says, well, you are old O-line B2B publisher. You shouldn't be doing print anymore. No, you should keep doing print because you're serving the audience well with it. You just have to modify your revenue strategies. That's what you have to do. You have to focus it on, you know, the event business, or you're going to sell products and services directly, like we're telling, you know, brands to do themselves. Um, so I, I don't, I don't buy that at all. Where you would go in, I've been through way too many meetings where um, you get the CEO in a meeting and they're talking to a publisher and say, Ah, oh, you're you're doing print. You got to be digital. We got to be innovative. Right, exactly. We got it. We got to do something different. Well, yeah. Well. Not if it's working, right? It's working exactly. really well. It's just the fact is that advertisers right. don't spend money on that anymore. They're spending right. money on other things. So let's talk about that problem. Print the print channel itself
1: is not the problem. So, anyways, rant yeah. over with. No, no, it's That's... it's a great it's a great point. You know, and the, the, what I took out of this article was something that we you know that we teach a lot and we talk a lot about. It's it's a it's a section of the masterclass where we talk about the fact that your comp, d- independent of whether you're in B to B or B to C, your competition is not your competition. It is everything else that tries to capture the attention of your consumers. You know, as as consumers, we are both C and B, right? You know, we are both consumers and businesses trying to both market our wares to either to businesses or consumers. And as consumers, we have to, you know, look at stuff that is both – us as a professional focused and us as a consumer focused. And so all of that competes with our attention. And as studies have shown, we don't as consumers, we don't compare the content and experiences that we have with a brand to the competition. We compare them to the last great experience we had. And that's why I like that quote so much is because, you know, candy crush is competing with my, you know, I don't play candy crush just to be perfectly clear. So candy crush is (laughs) competing candy crush is competing with my reading of Harvard Business here. Review. And that is, you know, that <laughs> is, that is, <laughs> oh my God, I just dug myself a hole there, didn't I? Just, keep, I'm just going to let you keep going. Just keep going. <laughs> it's all good. I was looking for a metaphor and I couldn't find one. Oh, my God. I'm, That's because I'm, you're looking at Now I'm going to get all these invites for Candy Crush. And... <laughs> <laughs> yes,
0: everyone said, Robert, <laughs> No, please don't request don't, don't Candy don't. Crush. As many as you can. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That no, is, I love this quote by uh, Neil Thackeray in here. It says, Newspapers make the mistake of pushing the content that everybody has got rather than pushing the content that only they have. Yes. Only their perspective.
1: That's every company. That's not That's just That's every company doing content marketing. It's exactly what we were just talking about for the last 15 minutes with Ann's thing. It's, this, is, this, is the, this is the problem. We push content that everybody has. It's so funny because I, I was telling you about the – I had a, a workshop with
0: um, – with small business CEOs this morning uh, on the East side of Cleveland and I got them all in a room and we were talking about, you know, how to, you know, the content tilt and how you really tell a different story. And I said, right. look, I don't know any of your businesses. I said, "But just think about your content. Think about what you're doing, your blog posts, your e-newsletters. Um, your podcast, your videos, whatever you're doing. I said, are you really, are you really telling a different story? <laughs> really? Are you really, are you really giving something <laughs> of value that they can't get in ten thousand other places? And they all just sunk their heads down. That's I'm like, right. it's. I said, I hate okay. I said, it's easier for me to say this. It's. I mean, it's a challenge that we have at CMI as well. You. Oh, for sure. A it's a challenge. Everybody. Has. It. Yeah, it's yeah. a challenge everyone has. But we can't just put out the same. And and that's what. You know, obviously, that's what got media companies and publishers B to B, B to C, whatever you want to call them. They got them in a hole because even look at somebody like, an e- I'm curious to w- if what ESPN does for competitive analysis because if you look at ESPN from a competition standpoint, rather than I mean, to your point, yes, everything Amazon they're technically competing with, but if you really look at the broad scale, they're not competing with a lot of other media companies. They're competing competing with the NFL, the MLB. The NBA, of course, Red Bull. None of those are media companies. So it's just interesting to see that, you know, your competition is never what your competition really is. So
1: that's right. Especially for the attention of your consumer. When you're talking about the attention of your consumer and delivering value that's separate and discrete from your product, and that is what content marketing at its heart really is about then delivering that value has nothing to do with your product or service, really. And it's about how do I deliver something of value that's differentiated to that consumer that may be, quite frankly, something that they can get somewhere else. You know, America, and, and by the way, this works the other way around, too. The, the, Andrew Davis talks about this, right, in Brandscaping, when we go out and say, hey, listen, we can go out and Brandscape and go make a partnership deal with somebody who doesn't compete for our product or service, but actually does sort of serve the same audience. And we can sort of leverage that as well. The example I always use, and I don't know if they actually do this, but the example I always use is like, Intuit serves a small business need. And so does American Express Open Forum, but they're not really in competition with one another. So they can actually go guest post with each other and draw each other's audience in and capture that and deliver that value and, and sort of get value for actually doing something across brand and across company, and it's something that I'll advise companies all the time to do is say, who's publishing to the audience you want to get to? How do you guest post there? Even if it's not in this, you know, don't go guest post at your competitor's blog. Go guest post at something that's delivering that value to your audience and go guest post there, even though it's completely off topic for what you do. Your audience is there. Go, go figure out how to deliver value there. Yeah. Yeah. So there. Just do <laughs> <laughs> so there, just do so there. It. Well, okay. So speaking of delivering value, <laughs> we've got a wonderful
0: sponsor. We should talk about. We do, and thank you so much to Widen again for sponsoring PNR and this old marketing. So they've Robert, helped us widen
1: our horizons.
0: Oh, you see, see what you, what you did right there. Yeah, that was yeah. that's pretty
1: impressive. So, Robert they're really? widening the gap between them and the competition. I'm just going to go on and Okay, do this all right, while keep going. You, if you have another one that's fine. <laughs>
0: <but>. <laughs> so really at the heart of this show, it's all about creating powerful content for customers that move the business and it's not necessarily a new practice in every show. You know, we have an example that is sometimes tens tens of years old and even hundreds of years old, but even though there are all these great examples out there, we've talked about John Deere's the furrow, Uh, Craft, of course, is a a usual suspect on this show. And even a couple weeks ago, we talked about the Chicken Whisperer, which is one of my favorite of all times. But most businesses, the creation of rich media assets for great content experience is not a scalable, repeatable process. Just like we talked about today, yeah. Isn't that funny how that happened? Yeah. So whether your business is using in-house teams, agencies, freelancers, or any and all of those to create these rich media content assets, the creative efforts seem more disparate. Ad hoc and siloed than ever before. So, to put it simply, great visual storytelling takes a village. Oh, oh,
1: hey. here's a call. That's, that's what they, you know, that's what that's they in second. the biz call a callback. They call yeah, that a callback, a Joe. Se- oh, is that yeah. really? Is that what? That's you call what it's that? called. It's called a callback. Yeah,
0: I think I call it a coinky dink. <laughs> um, <laughs> But the, but these days that village may be really spread out. And that's why we have this wonderful white paper by Wyden that really talks through visual storytelling takes a village. And who wrote – I think we know who wrote this. Who wrote
1: did, I don't know. Some, some guy. Rosa Solo? Rosa, Solo. Like yeah. Rosa, yeah. Rosa, Rosa Solo. Solo, yeah. Rosa Solo, yeah.
0: It really, this white paper speaks about how to bring this spread out village into a working community and it shares the four C's, including collaboration and the ability to work together on critical creative processes in one system, to customize with personal dash- dashboards and have the ability to plan, review, and approve creative assets, to communicate through different platforms for mobile and email, and of course, through collaborative interfaces based on the team's function, and finally, to connect. I like that four C's. That's pretty good, Robert connect assets to insight in this fragmented omni-channel world. It's called visual storytelling takes a village. It's a great piece. Very insightful. Download it today at bit.ly slash widen dash visual dash storytelling. That's bit.ly slash widen dash visual slash or dash storytelling. And thanks again to widen for being a wonderful sponsor of this old marketing.
1: Absolutely. Thank you to them. And, um, yeah, despite the obvious that uh, I wrote the piece, it's uh, it's it's actually a it, it's actually it, it actually turned out pretty well. So I,
0: I, I so let's go check <laughs> it out. Besides the fact that I
1: wrote it, <laughs> the fact, is, yeah, look look past that. Look past hey, the fact. Speaking of Koinky Dinks, and I you know last last uh, I think it was last show we like we talked about Gnip Gnop. Did did you play with Shrinky Dinks? And oh, when absolutely! You were a kid?
0: I love Shrinky Dinks. Ah, uh, Shrinky yeah. Dinks
1: were the best. I had Star Wars Shrinky Dinks. Believe it or not. Oh,
0: Star Which Wars the shrinky best. dinks. That's, that's, a, that's that was cool. The best. But the problem is is that I had a Yoda shrinky dink and it shrank down. The coast. <laughs> it just became too shrinky to dink. just became nothing. I'm like, and I started crying because I'm like, where's my Yoda shrinky And it's like, sorry, Yoda.
1: Yoda. Disappeared. vanished, Just like the movie. Shrinking it. it, it, mm. Oh, (laughs) hey, that's pretty good. Yeah, all right. Let's move along here. It is time for your favorite part of the show, folks. It is our rants and rave section, where Joe and I go off on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave. Something that makes us feel like we have the Force with us, or something that makes us feel like, you know, that Sith guy. Um, And so let's see. You're going first because you have this old marketing this week. I do.
0: I do. I have two very brief raves, believe it or not, because I've ranted enough on this show. The first one, I had way too many people um, email me and tweet me out that, uh, gimlet media who produces one of the best podcasts uh, in the business right now called startup and it kind of goes through uh, you know the startup of gimlet media and all the things that they're going through and gimlet media is a podcast podcasting business and episode number 17 is called words about words from our sponsors and it was all about sponsored content and i it was yesterday uh, i was driving to columbus ohio uh, for ohio inbound marketing day and by the way <laughs> At Ohio Inbound Marketing Day, it was really hard to say inbound marketing versus content marketing. It was it was it hurt a little bit as I did that. But I did it. I did
1: it. <laughs> it hurt a little uh, bit. It,
0: it it did every time. Yeah. Every time I said it, you know, an angel loses his wings. Yeah. Um, But uh, I did, uh, I had to listen. It's a 40 minute podcast, and I'm not going to go through it in detail. But if you are at all interested in native advertising and sponsored content, you need to listen uh, to episode number 17, and we'll make sure we put it in the show notes. And it was so funny, Robert, just the. The pain that they were going through because they wanted to keep their, et- what they would call their editorial integrity, and they didn't want to sell the farm, and so they were, they, actually Zillow was the company that they were presenting with a um Uh, branded content piece as they were calling it and they wanted to just, just create the content like they were doing a special piece just for Zillow and they presented it and they were really proud of it and they came up with the idea and then Zillow came back and they said besides the price, Zillow was all upset because they wanted to leverage gimlet's brand and they wanted to leverage gimlet's distribution and i just thought it was so funny that's awesome that's always comes back to that and so you know you're fighting against that doing that so it's really really good insightful so if you get the time i would absolutely recommend that podcast and the second one was just sent out to me. So, at Douglas J. Foley was nice enough to tweet this out on the This Old Marketing hashtag, and I saw it. Um, So, this was uh, from December 11th. So, how a mom-and-pop creamery in Brooklyn became the official ice cream of Star Wars. Of course, this is our Star Wars-themed episode. This is from Adweek. And I love this, so I'll just give it a little bit br- briefly. But basically, you know, Brian Smith and his wife, uh, Jackie, they operate a two-parlor chain, ice cream chain in Brooklyn called Ample Hills Creamery. And they were actually—it's it Most of their sales are online, though. And what happened is, um, Disney chairman CEO and acknowledged ice cream aficionado Bob Iger um, read an article in the Wall Street Journal and wanted to, you know, try their ice cream. And the order came through. And uh, uh, what's his name? Brian Smith, the owner is a former screenwriter and you know big Disney, big Star Wars fan and saw Bob Iger come, name come through and responded back and sent Bob Iger based on the order, sent him a cookbook from Ample Hills Creamery cookbook and a drawing of uh, Mickey Mouse wearing an Ample Hills uh, shirt, arm and arm with the Ample Hills cow wearing a frozen t-shirt and all this stuff. It was all customized, but I love the fact that they actually sent a cookbook, on to Bob Iger, so Bob got this and was totally flat out impressed. And basically, Bob reached out to them and say, "Hey, if there's anything I can do to help your business, please let me know." And you know, the owner said, "Well, yeah, there's I, you know," I says, "after I picked my jaw <laughs> yeah, off the floor, I can think
1: of a few things." <laughs> I said, "Yeah, there are a lot of ways
0: I can help." And they came up with two ice creams and they launched it, and they are the official ice creams of Star Wars. One's called the Light Side and Chewbacca's on it. And then one is called, of course, the dark side, and the light side is marshmallowy, and the dark side is fudge goodness and all that kind of stuff. But uh, they are the, they did this integration, and they sold. They started, I think, they launched it on December first, and they got eight thousand orders that day on December first, and that's that compares to what they usually do in six months. <laughs> they, did it in, they did it in one day, and I just thought it was interesting. And the, what I thought was, really worked well – and by the way, they just got $4 million in funding, so this is really helping them all around with their business. But it was interesting that they paid attention to their customers as they came in. He recognized the name and then sent them a really good, insightful piece of content.
1: That's – well, there so you I just go. Thought and it just...
0: Was, I just thought it was a fantastic story, and just... now they're –
1: they're just flying high and I mean and once again proving that you don't have to go viral you just have to be remarkable to a very very niche audience and in this case an audience of one and just notice
0: yeah, yeah. just just notice a little bit i mean that's a the, and it, it doesn't have to be bob Iger, obviously but once you get more data about your customers and you can serve them with more compelling content these kinds of things can happen that's maybe right. you won't get the license to star wars but
1: maybe other good thing, good things <laughs> can <could> happen <laughs> So there you go. That is awesome. All right. Well, I have a – so I had a rant, um, and then it turned into a rave because um, a friend and colleague actually wrote the post that I wanted to write, um, which is not uncommon for him to do. But um, So the the rant part of this comes from Adweek, um, and we'll put both of these, obviously, the links into the show notes. And and so my rant is this – so this week – I don't know if you saw this, Joe, but Maurice Levy – um, who is the head of Publicis? Was basically in this completely mind-numbing video, um, trying to explain the new reorganization at Publicis Group. Okay, and without belaboring all the details, because it's actually, if you've got twenty minutes to kill, it's it's a it's a it's a head it's a head scratcher. Um, but basically, Publicis is going through a major reorganization that'll create four new. Vertical or hubs, wait do you hear them? You're, you're, it's going to go, yeah, yeah, and then what? <laughs> because okay. so the four new uh, basically, and all these new leadership roles within the within the holding company itself, they okay, so they include publicist communications, okay. publicist media, all right, publicist sapient, and Publicist Healthcare. What? <laughs> wait a minute! Wait a minute! What? Okay. 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 So Explain. those are, those are the four major new divisions of publicists. And then they've got lots of these other senior executives moving around and all of that, moving their deck chairs to sunnier parts of the ship, it would seem, and all of that. So the awesome thing is is that so Levy spends a good part of this 20-minute video talking about how he's going to bust all these silos and then proceeds to, of course, <laughs> create four new ones. Create words. four more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But even more obvious, and this is where my rave comes in, is, is, is that when he starts to describe the reorganization and this four-headed thing that he's creating and all this kind of stuff. So Levy says, and I'm quoting, here. He says, basically, what does reverse our business model mean? Because he uses this whole thing about, you know, we're going to reverse our business model. And he says, so what does reverse our business model mean? Well, it means like all of our industry peers, we have underpinned our growth strategies over the last decades through brands and networks, or we could say through silos. And then he starts to name a few of the site, the publicist brands, you know, that that, that make up a, a number of those sites, basically all the different agencies that make up their, their group, and the coordination of all of our entities. And then he basically sort of sums it all up by saying, you know, some people say that this organization of all these sort of holding companies as part of our group provides useless delays and all these problems, and that it creates multiple points of contact, and despite all our effort to keep this at bay, yet... As he says, as we all know, perception is reality. And in our business, we've got to change reality, not the perception. So basically he's saying, you know that business model we've had for you know 20 years? Yeah, it's awesome and it's solid, but everybody thought it was crap. And so we changed to this new unproven business model because, you know, perception's reality. <laughs> just like just silly, silly, silly logic. So my rave is I was going to basically go off on a rant on that and write this post on it and do this whole thing. And then my colleague, Dr. Tim Walters... Who's part of Digital Clarity Group and 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 has done even some wonderful research work with us in the past. Just a one of a really super smart guy. I really like, and he writes this post that we'll link to, and and he basically takes the he the, almost the entire post to sort of take that whole statement apart, and it's just great. I mean, he diagrams the sentence, and he does this just it just talks oh about this. God. So basically, he goes off and says, you know, the obvious problem is that Levy wants to have his tart tartan, which. I love that he says and eat it too how can he reconcile his campaign to eradicate silos with his insistence on the brand identity of said silos and he says logically the position is inescapably incoherent but I think publicist equally inescapably has to embrace it for practical reasons in short the agency silos harbor most of the value in other words as he I just think so poetically says yeah silos work for the agency <laughs> for the client Yeah, not so much so we'll whisk a few things Around will change the perception of what silos really mean, and everything will be right with the world. <laughs> so it's just, it's a brilliant post that takes apart this really inane idea um, that I think Maurice Levy was trying to communicate and doing so in a very poor fashion. Um, it basically all goes to show that these giant holding company agencies are f- desperately trying to figure out what the heck is going on because, and, you know, I think with no. Kowinki Dink, um, that publicist just lost all of the Procter and Gamble business, which was two two and a half billion dollars. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, no. yeah, they just no. lost the the big Procter and Gamble, and guess where it went? Omnicom, oh, and man. that gigantic yeah. agency is now where. But I think even then, it's going to you know we're starting to see sort of these giant agencies start to lose that holding companies start to lose a lot of client value and. And I think that's a trend that may continue well into uh, into next year. And so that's my that's my rave slash rant the, the, for this that's, week. That's interesting.
0: I was talking with, and it doesn't just happen on the agency side. I was talking with a former employee at General Electric, and they were saying that their moniker and a lot of their press releases now, the first line in, the, in about us is General Electric is a digital company. It yeah. It, dro- it drove this person crazy. It says, "What the heck does that mean?" <laughs> Every company's a digital company, right, exactly. So, General Electric, that has all this wonderful innovation and this history, and they do things that no other company does. They are their first line to everyone around the world about what they do is the same thing as what everybody else does. That's right. So I just, it's just crazy and yeah. that's totally off the point but
1: yeah well no it is it's 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 a it's a it's a great point I mean I think what they what they're trying to say is is that they're, they're trying to reposition themselves I think relatively successful I mean you've seen the ads on TV and stuff where they're talking about GE being a, a software development company in many ways now and you know there's the I don't know if you've seen the ad where the coder is at his friend's house and he's I like, did I'm I, gonna I be an app that. developer and they're like oh cool you're gonna be developing all these cool social things and like, well I'm gonna be helping trains run faster and be like wait what I thought you said you were gonna be engineer not an engineer
0: you know that yeah oh no I love the ads I actually think they make sense but that but that none of that has to do with it's just the new part of what General Electric does now and things that they just you know people don't know about it's not the that's fact right that it's digital frankly General Electric has been digital for a long time that's yeah, exactly new so I I don't yeah. know I, I I'm sure I mean that's a that's a big company. I'm sure they know what they're doing, but
1: <laughs> yeah, I not uh, They don't need you know, Joran, head Skywalker we were, and uh, Roso
0: Solo yeah, helping we were, them out. Yeah, we were head scratching about that one, anyways. <laughs> yeah. All right, so I've got uh, I've got this old marketing, and of course, in true Star Wars week, um, we we wanted to make sure we got a Star Wars this old marketing in, and and I I don't have all the detail, Robert, but I got as much as I could because I had a conversation with our good friend Buddy Scalera. And buddy and I was at uh, was at Reagan Airport or something like that. And we were just talking about Star Wars coming up and how we're all geeking out over it. And he says, "Did you know the history about, you know, Marvel Comics and and Star Wars and how that was so critical to Star Wars continuing to run longer in the theaters when it first came out in 1977. I said, no. I said, I know about Star Wars comic books, but I don't know the detail. He says, you got to go look it up. He said, go use it on the podcast. So I thought this was the most appropriate week to do that. So if you go back and you look at uh, – so what happened here? 1975. So – um Charles Lippincott, which was Lucasfilm's uh, publicity supervisor in 1975, approached Stan Lee, obviously owner, uh, figurehead at Marvel, about publishing a Star Wars comic book prior to the film's release to appeal to the film's most likely audience. But Lee declined to consider the proposal until the film was completed, but didn't, you know. Lucasfilm said, no, no, we got to do it. We got to, it's really, really important. Arranged a second meeting with Roy Thomas who wanted to edit the series and and they basically then agreed to almost coincide the launch of Star Wars and Star Wars came out. I had to write this down because I forgot the exact date, even though I was alive. May 25th, 1977 is when the Uh, When Star Wars was released, and then July of 1977, the comic book series was released. It was already in production before the movie came out. And what was really interesting about that is, and I've been reading in some articles, and I got an article here from uh, Hollywood Reporter that I'll put in the show notes as well. Um, What what happened is because the Star Wars comic books were running, it kept a lot of the I don't know, quote unquote geeks that were really into Star Wars. They even became more into Star. So it was a lo- really as amazing loyalty effort because it people started reading the comic book series and then they got back and they went back to see the movie. And of course, you and I have heard the reports about people going to see that movie forty, fifty, a hundred times, and that thing just ran forever. And a lot of that doing was because of this. Star Wars comic book series that Marvel ran. Well, what a lot of people don't know, Robert, is the fact that Star Wars didn't get a dime off of this until it basically said, look, Marvel, Stan, you do this. We don't want anything until you hit 100,000 copies. If you sell 100,000 and it's a success, then you know we can renegotiate. So of course, there was no risk in it for Marvel. They said, well, we can just give it a shot and, and go do it. And what happened is, is that Um, The Star Wars comic book series was so successful, there's a lot of people and there's a lot of reports here in these articles that I'm reading that it actually saved Marvel. Because Marvel was really struggling from the time period of 77 to 86, and Star Wars comic books was their best seller lasting 170 issues and three annuals, and it really kept Marvel afloat. So there's really two issues here. One is, they get, you know, Star Wars gave away the IP for free to do the comic book series for Marvel to do it, and it really helped them with people seeing that movie originally in 1977, but at the same time, we don't even know if Marvel would be around if they didn't decide to do that. So I just thought it was interesting, especially on, on Star Wars week just to think about uh, the importance of other channels when you're when you're launching something and, and the, and the tie in really, really worked well and it fed off each other.
1: That's so. that's awesome. And I think if I'm not mistaken, the, because and I'll, I'll get a little bit, I'm sure I will get corrected on this. Um, I believe that the movies and a few novels and a few of the more recent comics um, are really all that's left, other than the sort of there, there was a cartoon series as well. Are the only canon, or what's considered Star Wars canon, um, and meaning like official timeline, sort of official part of uh, you know everything that's not in the movies, obviously. Okay. Yeah. So I think it's some of the more recent. I think they they chopped it off at some timeline, um, but I believe um, much much of um, uh, what's there is uh, in the comic book was was considered canon. It's an amazing series, I yeah. Mean, and then, and then now,
0: it's it's so funny how it's all back in the same family. I mean, the Lucasfilm and Marvel are all together there at Disney, just having a good old time. There so you go. It's uh, funny. The, the the Dark Empire of Disney has won.
1: <laughs> dun, 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 it will, dun, but that, dun, well, but they'll be purchased dun, by Apple dun, at some dun. point,
0: sooner or later, anyway. So, <laughs> then all really right, the Dark Empire, yeah. Where are you this week? Are you done? You're, you're, you're done. Oh, are you got a holidaying? Quick, Yeah. As this, as this episode goes live, we have, um, site inspection and we're looking at space. At the,
1: si- uh, is that what the kids call it these days?
0: Is site inspection? Site inspection in okay. Las Vegas. I see. Yes. Yeah. I'll be actually doing work, believe uh-huh. it or yeah. not. That's your sure. intelligent content okay. conference. All right. Which I'm, we'll, I'm with you there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Intelligent content conference, which is March 7th through 9th, 2016 registered today. Uh, but yeah, then I'll be back. Uh, and then the, the last two weeks of the year, I'm, I'm spending time with the family, hopefully as much as, as possible, doing some writing, doing some podcasting as we always do, but,
1: but that's it. How about, are you done traveling now? I'm, I've got one very little day trip down to San Diego that I have to do um, this week, this coming week, and then I'm pretty, pretty much the last thing I have to do other than the aforementioned podcasting and some writing and sort of hanging out with the family and just taking a, a much needed little break and, um, and getting ready for uh, 2016. Well, I will let you know how Star Wars is immediately. Oh, I will j- tell you. Shut up. Yeah. All right. Fine. I will. I'm going to text you. As soon as I'm out, I'm going to text you. I'm going to go, nah, 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 nah. nah. Uh, I can't wait. I can't wait. It's going to be awesome. All right All right, that is it for all of you. I hope you enjoy Star Wars. Those of you who are actually going out and seeing the premiere, like Mister Jorange Skywalker Polizzi, this is Robert Rose signing off. And you know, tweet us up. We love those story ideas. Hashtag this old marketing on Twitter. Um, And you can always follow that for the discussion as well. And you know, if you've got a question, or you just want to chat, or you want to sort of you know correct us on all of the wonderful Star Wars trivia that we threw out in this episode, send an email. This old marketing. Content Institute.com. And if you like this episode, number 109 in a galaxy far, far away, we do hope you'll consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher.com. All the links we talked about today will be available in the show notes that come out with the actual episode on Monday evening. And then, of course, in the show post on thisoldmarketing.com on Saturday. All right, remember, folks, it is your story to tell. Tell it well. We'll see you next week on This Old Marketing.